G'day mate, 40 here. So I, I woke up at 3.13am. Uh, uh, I got up shortly thereafter uh, and uh, having quite a productive day until about 2pm when I went for a walk and after about two blocks I was just really tired and it wasn't because I did so much exercise yesterday I only walked about uh, two miles nice. yesterday I just so I just kind of hit the wall so getting up so early maybe it's taking a toll and if I don't live stream right now all I'm gonna do is lie back and watch documentaries so if I live stream I'm gonna get energy because one I'll have anxiety that I'll say something really stupid that I'll, I'll do something really stupid that that I'll forever ruin my life by something I do while I'm sleep deprived. And two, I get energy from seeing my friends on here and discussing ideas and events. And I was watching this Netflix documentary that got me thinking. And when I get thinking, I get excited and I can overcome my lethargy and exhaustion by getting on here and telling you what I'm so excited about. So it's this documentary series, Web of Make-Believe, Death, Lies, and the Internet. Hey, did you know that there are some people out there who use the internet to do bad things? I know you're like pretty shocked. It's like, no way, 40. No way that that can't, that can't possibly be true. I mean, it never, ever, ever occurred to me that, that people might use, use the internet to, to, do, to do bad things. And did you realize that people have a monster inside, right? That we not only have inclinations towards doing good, right? So if you watch this show, you're, you're very likely out there volunteering in your community. You're filled with love and light. You're intent on repairing the world under the rule of God. But even with all these wonderful inclinations, we also have some negative inclinations, <laughs> like shocking. I mean, the things I'm learning in this Netflix series that we have some inclinations to do bad in addition to inclinations to do good and, and we have have a monster inside of us and speaking of monsters elliot blatt what's going down bro oh blessings bro what a wonderful what a wonderful afternoon Thanks, happy bro. father's day to you bro <laughs> back at you my man back at you yeah my daddy <laughs> i'm out here in the park luke it's just a just a gorgeous day oh it looks beautiful it's just stunning wow and uh, you know can you just my camera on oh no no oh, good 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 you know the freaks are out in force though they're performing like, uh, if you're mentally ill if you're mentally ill you want to be seen by other people it seems like you want yes to be seen yes and here i am here i am <laughs> here exhibit, i am exhibit a. Part of you. <laughs> i want to be seen mentally ill <laughs> yeah i don't know uh it's like a cry for help but they their, their behaviors do nothing but just push you away you, know? you don't want to turn on your camera bro Will it, will it, uh, uh, I'm not you... looking my best these days. I'm no, no, you're shocking me. <laughs> I'm out all... here though. I'm getting some, I'm getting some sun. Ugh. Yeah. I'll maybe a little later. If I'm feeling, if... let me get a little color on my face. Then I'll turn my camera on. After ah. all that time in the isolation tank, bro, I thought. Bro, I'm, I'm killing time. I've got another appointment at 6.15. I'm going into the isolation tank at 6.15. I, uh, I changed locale. So I'm in a different neighborhood now. I'm now not in the yoga pants neighborhood anymore. I'm in the mission. So is that easier is for your sexual sobriety? <laughs> yeah. 
Like, I, it's impossible to keep your mind on business in the yoga pants neighborhood. It's, it's a competition. It's an arms race uh, among the yoga pants. Like, the, the battle was too intense, Luke. I had to uh, maintain my sobriety and, and, and pick up stakes and move elsewhere. So I'm um, here in the more tame, the more uh, corpulent section of town where there's fewer yoga pants and a lot of hideous tattoos. So I think I'm safe. So are you connecting with people? I mean, it sounds like a lot of friends you haven't made yet. No, no. I, I found the exact part, the part where there's like a 20-foot perimeter. <laughs> the only part. I, I, I sought it out. I saw the most isolated part, part of the park that I could find. Uh, it's on a downslope, so all, all the all the, most people like the uh, the flat, but I, I chose the downslope because uh, I'm uh, more likely to be alone here. And I got a freak coming at me right now. Hold on a second. Okay, no confrontation. We're all, we're cool. Okay. Whew, that was close. And, and and the staff at this new new center are they more friendly than the other one? Oh, this is the A team. Yeah, apparently I yeah. was at the B. T- I was at like yeah. the minor league track, you know, the minor league ballpark. So now I'm soaring with the Eagles. So this used to be my old neighborhood back in the day, but it's since become um, it's since become kind of like the Park Slope of uh, of um, of San Francisco. Meaning, you know, it's a lot of the Google people and the Apple people and the Facebook people and the designer outfits and. Um, you know, people are wealthier here. Um, this used to be like a neighborhood where you were embarrassed to admit that you lived. You know, you used to come here because there was all the bookshops and people would play chess and there would be panhandlers and open air drug markets. But now it's completely, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's jumped a shark. It's now... Uh, it's 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 like I'm I'm like a block from Mark Zuckerberg's house. Think about that. Wow. It's the elites. The elites. I'm I'm soaring with the eagles, Luke. It feels good. Wow. You you know what? I feel like you're up where you belong. <laughs> where the eagles soar on a mountain how high? I mean, come on, lift us up where we belong, bro. Is that, is that John Denver? Uh, no. No, lift us. Up where we belong. It's Joe Cocker and Jennifer oh, Warnes. It's from uh, from that 1982 movie, um, sorry, An Officer and a Gentleman, starring Richard Reeves. Oh, yeah, Officer and Gentleman. There's only two things that come from North Carolina. Steers and queers. Which are you, bro? <laughs> you know the lines, Luke. That's, that's why we get on. We have the same references. Do you remember, uh. do you remember the 1981 uh stick song these are the best of times uh is that what you played this morning i remember sticks that was sort of middle school for me but um i mean i think it's so apropos to the show because it, it says the headlines read these are the worst of times and, and they admit i do believe it's true i feel so helpless like a boat against the tide you know i wish the summer winds could bring back paradise but the best of times elliot are when i'm alone with you I remember, I remember I was, the, now that you say this, I remember like, I must have been, I want to say sixth grade, maybe seventh grade. Um, and I, I was uh, palling around with a friend out in the woods and I found a sticks cassette tape in the woods. 
you know, kind of like a porn mag that you would find. Yeah, in the yeah, woods. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I left a lot sticks. of porn mags yeah, in the woods. Yeah, so this was a Styx cassette tape. And that was the very day that Reagan was shot. Wow. The, the very day Reagan was shot, I was coming home from school and I mean, not from school, from school. I got off the bus. I was like walking, walking down the road and I passed a guy sitting in his car masturbating, which like scared me to death. I'd, I'd never seen that before. I mean, so you could you like, couldn't put the two together and say this is danger. You no, I, I could absolutely. I, I, I kept walking and then. It gets worse. Then he drives up beside me and asks me if I want to ride. And I mean, I am freaked out. And then Baruch Hashem, some people from church drive by and ask me if I want to ride. And I was just so relieved. I mean, but have you ever walked down the street and had a masturbating man ask you if you want to ride? Well, similar this experience. And I'm actually very, I'm sitting in the very place where this happened like 25 years ago. I was walking by this park and I saw a guy in a sleeping bag, you know, completely his head covered everything. He was in a sleeping bag laying down in the park and he was clearly rubbing one out <laughs> in broad daylight in the park inside of a sleeping bag. So again, the synchronicities are just. Did you have a conversation with him? <laughs> no, but I got a good chuckle. <laughs> Did he ask you if you wanted a ride? No, he was pretty busy. He was, uh, he had his head down, if you know what I mean. I was staying with this UCLA professor, and he came padding into my room at like 10 o'clock at night and asked me if I wanted a blowjob. Yeah, this is a very traumatic event in your life. It was, uh, it was, because he was such a good friend to me, aside from that little bit of awkwardness. But yeah. our friendship was never really the same. Have you ever had like a friend who... You know, ask you for a, if you want a blowjob, and it just kind of takes I, a toll on the friendship. I used to have this one colleague who uh, swung that way, shall we say, and he would always very subtly hit on me, and it was very, very aggravating. And yeah, it, it, it kind of creeps me out. I kind I, I, I wish I could say it helped me develop more empathy for women. <laughs> right, because guys are always trying to, you know, drop a load on them. So, yeah. Oops, Did you hear that? No, no accident. Uh, so anyway, Luke, uh, I've been, uh, I haven't had coffee for. Um, this is the seventh week, no coffee. Wow, these Maybe are the best of times. We'll yeah. take the best, forget the rest, and one day we'll find. Yeah, I don't know. It's a small but important victory of my life. And, and uh, what, what are the benefits? What are the costs? Are you taking nicotine well, patches instead? Nothing. Cold turkey, Luke. I, I've been doing these immersion tanks, right? And when you're in there, you can hear your heartbeat, you know? And I heard my heartbeat, and my heart was racing. And because uh, in high school, I, I was like, I was an athlete, you know? And I had like a 60 beat per minute heart rate, resting heart rate, which is pretty good you know, for, a, you know, and I heard it going and it was just chugging along like probably 80 beats per minute or something. And I said, man, this can't be healthy. So uh, that was the catalyst I needed to um, quit the old coffee. So um, what about and, nicotine? Uh, Have you had much experience with nicotine? I hear it makes you five, five to 10 IQ points smarter. 
A couple years ago, I was dabbling with cigars, you know, and um, it definitely does. The mental focus that you get from nicotine is real. It's definitely real. And and I really like the taste, Um, but it's such a toxin. And I was I, I had I had taken a picture of myself and then I saw my skin and my skin had this gray pallor kind of. And I really saw that I'd seen that look on a lot of, you know, smokers. It's a very unhealthy look. And bam, I never smoked. I stopped smoking altogether. I lost all my shirts. Mm. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I totally nicotine, you know, I can understand why riders like to smoke. And, and it does sharpen your mind up quite a bit. But it comes at a cost. Do you have a pet name for your monster inside? Yeah, Anaconda. And when did he last rear his ugly head? In the isolation tank. Did it like bump up against the ceiling? Oh, it was knocking over furniture. It was just a real, it was just a, you know, embarrassing spectacle. I call mine little Luke. Like, would you like to meet my little friend? Yeah, not, 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 not the croc. Like, I know you feel these are the worst of times, and I do believe it's true. When people lock their doors and hide inside, rumor has it it's the end of paradise. But I know if the world just passed us by, Elliot, I know you wouldn't have to cry. No, no. So you're not pessimistic, Luke. You're an optimist. You don't think the world's ending right now. Well, the headlines read these are the worst of times, and sometimes I feel so helpless like a boat against the tide. You know, I wish the summer winds could bring back paradise. But the best of times are when I'm streaming with you, bro. Some rain, some shine. We'll make this a world for two. Can't top that, Luke. It sticks. I, you know, I, I quit the bone. I don't listen to that that station anymore. So I'm not. All those all those top forty hits of uh, yesteryear faded from my mind. So I can't laugh along with you because I, I I don't particularly even remember that song at all. Tonight's the night we'll make history, bro, you and I, because I'll take any risk to tie back the hands of time and stay with you here tonight. You're too kind, man. You're too kind. So, no, come on. Seriously, bro. Seriously. Seriously. Are you, are you listening to all this doom thing on the internet about the economy? I, I've just bought, like, 50 songs on iTunes. Like every song that I love, I now have, I have over five and a half hours of songs that I love. Like I'm waking up in the middle of the night and thinking, I want to hear the best of times and just play it on my phone. And then I turn on Anne Murray's greatest hits and go to sleep. So you're not sleeping well, huh, Luke? No, I'm sleeping pretty well because I've got, these are the best of times. I know you feel these are the worst of times, but for me, these are the, the best of times when I'm alone with my iPhone. Why do you buy? Why do you buy music when you can just get it on? It's just more convenient, instead of like downloading it illegally. I, I'm a, you know, I'm a stickler for for protocol. Uh, yeah, but it's not illegal, is it? To download from YouTube? Oh, but the quality. Like I, I'm, a, I'm an old-fashioned Victorian gentleman. I like the finer things in life. Yeah. So you want those audio files? You'd have like a big, big, big ass. Uh, High fidelity system back in the 80s. And you're like, bro, check out this equalizer, bro. Are you one of those guys? No, but I, no, I'm not. But I'm maybe mild. I mean, I just, 
I'm not very sensitive with my hearing, but I, I did buy $400 headphones. So, oh, you did? Yeah, $400. Oh, you're a professional. You're, a broad, you're a broadcasting professional. So well, I don't use them when I broadcast because they're wireless, and I find that wireless headphones can go out on you while you're doing a show, and it's a major pain, so I use wired headphones during the show. But other than that, I like these $400 Sony headphones because they're wonderful noise-canceling abilities. And, uh. and to hear air supply on $400 Sony headphones, bro, it's like these are the best of you times. Want, you want to, when you hear them, you want to sort of jump in your car and just start racing through traffic? No, I want to get in touch with my feelings and do some very okay. gentle Alexander technique. Oh, that's what I've been doing in the tank, bro. I've been getting in touch with my feelings. Awesome. What I, have you been feeling aside from okay. Anaconda? Well, here's what I've been doing. I'll tell you. Tell me if this is a good technique. I, so you're totally alone in the tank, right? So it's like you can kind of relax. It's like the only time in the city when you're really completely alone. And so I've been stretching out, you know, just gradually, like just releasing all this tension, you know, and I'm like, all this hostility, all of this, all of this sort of, you know, these ancestral resentments, I'm like, I forgive you, I forgive you, I just broadcast this out to the universe, you know, and I like, I say, I don't, I'm releasing you from your burden, I forgive you, and I just, so all these people, I go down the list of all these people that I hate and detest. Yeah, I mean, that's a long list. I mean, how long yeah, oh, are you in there? Well, I'm in my second month, and I've probably got like six more months to go. So, but it's it actually works, man. I'm like, I'm feeling lighter. I'm feeling like these little subtle burdens I'm letting go of, you know, and I can like just live in the present again. I can hear it. Seriously, there's a, a change quality to your voice. Really? Is yeah. it deeper and more resonant? More no, it's just, it's lighter. It's not as pulled down. Yeah, yeah. Well, last time we spoke, you know, I'd been going through all this allergy stuff, which I, you know, I was really in a lot of pain physically. Um, so I was probably in a pretty down mood. But it's true. I've been doing this work, and I've been like, I've only missed one day in the, since May 1st. You know? And the reason I missed one day, this is an interesting story, possibly, it's possibly tedious, but I, uh, no. I, I had this friend, like, his name is William, and like, once a year, he lives in, in Boston, and he flies out because he has this special, like, naturopath doctor that he sees once a year, and he's in, he's in San Rafael, which is Marin County, one, you know, a little north of here, and he flies out here once a year. And, you know, hey, let's get together. We'll have dinner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he, I always, he always ends up roping me into giving him a ride to the airport the following day, right? Which is always a work day, right? And I, you know, he, he like, he kind of engineers the conversation to, uh, you know, so it turns out that, you know, it's really awkward for me not to offer or accept his request to give him a ride. Now giving him a ride to the airport, it's like a two hour ride trip, right? In the yeah. middle of the work day. It's highly inconvenient, right? Yes. On the weekend, no problem. But you know, I had to like reschedule a meeting and so forth. And uh, but he's got the salesman ability to sort of just kind of manipulate me, you know, and like, you know, so this happened again. I did it. I agreed to give him the ride, and I ended up giving him the ride, and I'm driving home, 
And I'm thinking, I'm not saying, never again am I doing this. This is what I'm saying to myself. Never again am I doing this. And I remembered, like a year ago, this exact same thing had happened. And like, <laughs> he had done it to me twice in a row. So it's like one of those fool me twice situations. And uh, shame on me, you know? Uh, yeah, I hate, I hate that. Like, I hate doing anything that I'm going to hate myself for later. <laughs> I mean, like... Throwing a 19-year-old Hispanic hawker out of the car is like, you know, it's like, I just don't feel good about myself. <laughs> a little twink getting the hell away. So how's LA these, doing, these days? Oh, it's such a beautiful day. It's like 74 degrees, sunny, uh, beautiful blue sky, not a cloud in the sky. Uh, I mean, it yeah. sounds like a Carpenter song. Isn't that a Carpenter song? Yeah, probably. Probably. Um, not, not. Don't a, you remember? Not a cloud. Don't you remember you told me you love me, baby? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's Carpenter. She had a great voice. I told Top you. Top of the like, world. Such a feeling's coming uh, over me. There's, this is what life is like in LA, bro. There's wonder in most everything I see. Not a cloud in the sky. Got the sun in my eyes, and I won't be surprised if it's a dream. Everything I want the world to be is now coming true, especially for me. And the reason is clear is because you are here. You're the nearest thing to heaven that I've seen. I'm on top of the world, looking down on creation. And the only explanation I can find is the love that I found ever since you've been around. Your love's putting me at the top of the world. It's great tunes. Timeless. timeless. I mean, when I hear Karen Carpenter sing, I feel like she's singing directly to me. Yeah. I told you, like, she had, I think it was her, she had a... Like they measured people's voice, their pitch, you know, they, 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 she had like the most accurate pitch of any performer. In all wow. Yeah, I believe it. So, so, so here, here's Luke. Here's what I've uh, So I'm in my old neighborhood and it's been, it's been completely like gate over now, you know, it's wonderful. Flat. That's a good thing. Yeah, of course. And there's, <clears throat> so apart from the sort of normal barrage of rainbow, rainbow flags, there's this sort of motif of love will win or love conquers hate or love not hate, you know, Beautiful. The, these, you know, it's like there's this battle going on between two emotions and um, there's just these mean people out there that like to hate and that we, on the other hand, are on the side of goodness and we like love, we love love and we were, we were rooting for love to, to defeat hate. It's just a weird sort of um, framing of yeah the the whole contemporary political situation, right? Because they just... seem pretty hateful to us. <laughs> like you, yeah. you, you tell one you tell one little joke, and, and suddenly joke. like just one tiny little joke that would have been totally cool twenty five years ago, and then like yeah. suddenly the hate just starts flowing in. Yeah, yeah. So. I don't know. It's just like, you know, you, you talk about, you know, quality of your relationships and friends and things like that. But this is what this is what I met with. I met with people who either are, you know, most people, if they're not like actively part of this, they sort of tacitly sort of unconscious, unconsciously accept the, those assumptions, you know, the, the, the whole sort of uh, woke framing is what people's default what they gravitate to right and, and it's like 
and they, as soon as they think that you're outside of that framing, they really shut down quickly. So I don't know. Is it really me that's that's uh, you know isolating myself, or is it my culture that's sort of? Well, like, how much time have you spent in a gay bathhouse? Because I do feel like you're isolating yourself. Like there's all sorts well, of radical love and inclusion. I mean, just take well, the best of it. I mean, I'm not saying participate, but take the best of gay bathhouse culture. And go to the better ones, not the not the you know lower rent ones where people well, got you know, monkeypox. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's been any monkey. I once went to a um, a spa, right? Mm-hmm. And I, it wasn't, a, but it was. Uh, so they have you know like hot tubs and uh, you know cold splash things, you know, and then a sauna. They have all that stuff, and it wasn't explicitly gay, but it was like. At least fifty percent of the people in there were gay. It was weird and uh, disquieting. So I don't know. Like a bathhouse is like, are they like explicitly about sex? Are they no, sex? no, no. They're they're about community and connection, <laughs> and they're about having killer muscle ass that loves to milk loads with my power glutes. <laughs> to, to quote Andrew Sullivan's singles ad. Yeah. <laughs> And he, he posted pictures too, like a fabulously muscled, thick necked, headless torso. Yeah. <clears throat> what is that whole like leather? Uh, what is you know oh, that whole that whole subculture of gay life? It's like leather and uh, what do they call chaps? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like this biker look that's. So it's just so weird to look at, and yet it's it's like a major fetish. Um, I never understood that. Uh, anyway, whatever. I'm afraid to share with you now some of my fetishes. I, I just I just think you're going to judge me for them. But oh, uh, but <clears throat> well now now that I'm now that I'm like just releasing everything, you know, right, I'm right, Mr. Mellow, Mr. Uh, right. you know, spiritual luminescent being, you know. I can let all this stuff just roll off my back, you know, man. And do so. you get any complaints from these establishments with all the releasing that you're doing inside of their tubs? <laughs> no, fortunately. So you're in a tub that's sealed and that's in a room with a closed door. So you're like double insulated. So you can just let it all out, bro. You're all alone. So no, no complaints at all. How many? But the funny you... thing... Go ahead. Sorry. Well, it's minor advice. You go in and there's a receptionist, right? You're in there for an hour and you come out and there's always a different receptionist, you know? <laughs> they have these, like, shifts that are, like, one, two hours long. So there's just no... So you can't you know, build. You can't build on the rapport that you had with when you came right. in. But they all know my name because my name's in the computer. So they say, hi, Elliot, as if, you know, we're buds and we know each other. And then, you know, I don't know them from Adam. They check me in. I go in and come out. And there's someone else. And they're like, hi, Elliot. How was your float? You know, <laughs> it's just this sort of contrived uh, human relationship. <laughs> just, uh, it's all also amusing. I-, I used to have a hard time telling when a woman was just being professional and whether she really liked me. And so I'd have to have friends usually explain to me that she was just being professional in her job. 
Oh, so you're one of those guys that just took any positive attention and you just latched onto it. Yeah. <laughs> so how long did it take you to, uh, you know, grow out of that, see through that? Well, I mean, I, I got better. I mean, also as I got less needy, I was less, you know, less vulnerable to, to a smile. Yeah. To a wink, you know, someone running your fingers through my hair or stroking my shoulder or tapping my knee. I be, I began to see through the game, bro. Yeah. They they can't run they can't run those scams on me anymore. No, no. Um Yeah, I put the L in LGBTQ. <laughs> so who do we got? Who got in the chat? usual fine citizens yeah so you got you got no theories about this impending uh inflation economic collapse scenario well if every western country is having the same thing then how much do you blame biden like i'd give him 10 percent of the blame how much do you blame him um uh i would say 40 percent Okay. So, and, so some of this was baked into the cake, right? Yep. Trump started all this money printing stuff there during his administration, right? Biden just con- continued it, but a lot of it was shut down by Manchin. So ultimately, the real cause is all the money printing. But so what's the, you know, beyond that, why does it, did they have to do it? Were they hand forced? Did they have to print all this money? Did they have to give all the stimmy checks? Maybe it was probably, they probably had to do it. So, um, but same time you know biden is the one saying this stupid stuff about putin being at fault white supremacy being at fault he's just he's completely (laughs) non-presidential right there's not even most he doesn't even have like the most cursory nod towards the truth he just is completely political rhetoric from top to bottom and then you know don't tell me that he's mentally competent you know just let's you know, I don't blame him for stuff, but we have to recognize a problem when we see it. <laughs> Do we not? <laughs> and, and which which international leader would you wish was ruling over you right now instead of Joe Biden? Uh, Victor Orban. Yeah. <laughs> if not, or yeah. Bolsonaro. I don't know. It's a toss. Bolsonaro, Orban. Yeah. Okay. You know. Yeah. Maybe even Vlad. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? He gets it done, bro. <laughs> and uh, do you do, do you emotionally feel anything for Ukraine? Um, honestly, I know I'm supposed to, but I don't. And uh, I mean, I have a lot of you know my buildings owned by Ukrainians. I have Ukrainians as um, neighbors. You know, I know a lot of Ukrainians. And I know a lot of Russians and, you know, I think whatever the situation that's out to be is what it's meant to be. I think the borders in Ukraine were a bit artificial. I think all of these modern conflicts uh, stem from so the post-World War II period where a lot of borders were drawn artificially and they cut through uh, traditionally traditional ethnic zones. So this was the problem of the rap, right? You had the Shia and the Sunni and we just drew these straight lines, but in truth, the Sunni had a particular area and the Shia had a particular area. And we bisected this area. We made them share a country where they really weren't meant to share a country, where they had their own natural harmony with their own ethnic group. And 
I think it's a similar situation to Russia and Ukraine. So there's a natural part of Russia that's Ukrainian, and it's a natural part of Russia that's Russia. And then you should just draw those lines, you know, take a deep breath, and then move on. So there's my bit on Ukraine, bro. And do you really think that I believe that we are living in the best of all possible worlds? Uh, no, that was a bit of that an was a rhetorical overstatement. It was an exaggeration, my point. Yeah. But I, I, I think I don't think you're giving due credit to legitimate criticisms that can be made. You know, against uh, our current leadership, we could have much better leadership. And you know, yes, people overstate the case, but it doesn't mean you know case that needs to be stated, and it doesn't mean that you know we should sort of abandon a positive vision of what we see are the right things and focus on those. So, um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. K the KMG stuff is funny. It was nice to see him again. It was weird that you were sort of negging on him. So now that he spurned your advances so many times, you've completely turned on him. <laughs> I thought I was very respectful and nuanced. <laughs> you weren't, bro. You were calling him a conspirator, man. That wasn't I, God forbid. God forbid. <laughs> All right, bro, I got a hack for you before I forget. Um, because it just occurred to me. And I, these are the types of things I tend to forget. But some of these YouTube things. If you're having trouble sleeping, you know, you have a half a glass of sour cherry juice at night before bed. And you'll, you'll, you'll get to sleep and you'll stay asleep. So give that, I've tried that and I think it's working. Okay, I, I like it. I dig it. I, re I respect it. You, you've been trying that. And that's even more effective than listening to Anne Murray's Greatest Hits. I don't know. I, I've sort of I've lost my taste for music, believe it or not. I, I much prefer silence these days. But, the Sound of know. Silence? That's a great song. I love that one. Hello, Dark, yes. It's my old friend. It's time to <laughs> talk to you again. Yeah, it was one of the albums my parents had growing up. I remember that. Uh, didn't have many albums. So that was one of them. Well, why do so, you have like five Desert Island discs, bro? Um, Muswell Hillbillies, Kinks, um, The Pearl, Brian Eno, um, um, let me think. <coughs> I have to sort through the rest. Okay. Um, and and yeah. where would, would the Scorpions love at first sting? Would that be on there? No, no, none of that trash. There's nothing on the Big radio. City Nights, Rock well, You Like that, a Hurricane, Still Loving that, You. I just bought that, that pop, album, bro. All that pop is, is bad for you. It's, 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 it's low IQ. It's plebeian. You should be in a higher realm by now, my dude. You got to transcend all of these adolescent feelings <laughs> excuse me wow i still have that cough can you believe it i've been stretched trying to stretch it out but... do, you, do you have long oh, covid I... do you have long covid bro <coughs> no but like I, that's what COVID. i did i bought something on amazon i bought a nebulizer on amazon you know what a nebulizer is no i do not <clears throat> well apparently it, you put like hydrogen peroxide in it and then you breathe in sort of this steam from made of hydrogen peroxide and saline solution <clears throat> and this sort of clears out your lungs so uh i've, I've got this so william the guy i gave the ride to he he 
he basically made me buy it in the restaurant. So I, I did. Um, and Man, you allow a lot of guys to just have their way with you. <laughs> I got daddy issues, bro. What can I tell you? I mean, they want you to do something. You do it. Like, even no, if you don't he, want to, even no, if you're but, like coughing and choking and saying, no, no, stop. No, I don't want to do this. No, but he's, he's one of these guys that's into like, you know, natural medicine <clears throat> in a big, solid way. You know, he's a, he's a smart guy. He's high IQ. <clears throat> and he, he does things. He, 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 he experiments with his stuff. And then he said he used to have the same problem. And then all I have to do is this, get this nebulizer, get these ingredients, and then my problems are over, dude. So I got that to look forward to. Hmm. I'm, I've thrown out the memes, Luke. I'm throwing out the memes and you're missing them. Your problems are, the problems are over. Do you know that one? Your problems are over, dude. And uh, did you ever buy into Bitcoin? Uh, I didn't buy into it, but I was, it's kind of a funny story. Uh, 2014, somebody gave me $10 worth of Bitcoin just to show me how it's done. Yep. And, and I forgot about it. And then uh, like 2000, I don't know, 18, when it was up at 20,000 last time, I looked at it, it was like $400. So I just cashed it out immediately. <laughs> but I never actually bought Bitcoin. I did, however, buy a Bitcoin miner uh, uh, way back, like 2015, 16. I was going to get into being a, a, a Bitcoin miner. And... I thought that was a good good investment, but it proved to be a very poor investment, sadly. Yeah. And how are you hedging against inflation? I, I don't know what to do. I'm paralyzed. I'm actually U.S. I'm Treasuries, terrified. bro. Like I'm getting, well, I'm getting over the inflation rate. I'm getting nine point five two percent. You're not getting nine percent annually. You're getting nine percent. What's the length of the bond? Nine point five two percent annually, and it's a five-year bond. There's no way you're getting that because everybody would do that in this environment. It's, a, it's a U.S. Treasury. It's an I bond. It, but I mean, it's, you can only buy ten thousand dollars, and um, you're getting nine percent annually. I mean, Bernie Madoff. Nine point five two percent. Bernie Madoff is offering twelve percent. People thought that was like outrageous. So well, I mean, I, a, I, risk, I, a risk free. You're saying a risk free. Risk free. Yep. Series I savings bond, current current rate nine point six two percent, and uh, if you if you try to cash out early, you have to give up three months of uh, interest payments. Well, I'm definitely going to do that then because that sounds too good to be true. Yeah, uh, look into buying Series I savings bond, and the best thing is you're investing in the United States of America. You're a patriot. That's the best country in the world, man. Living it's free, the greatest, living free. <laughs> I mean, seriously, all these all these conspiratards, like, you know, they, they're not going to buy U.S. Treasuries. They're going to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, <clears throat> every, it's very funny. Like, there is an incredible amount of overlap between Bitcoin enthusiasm and our sort of our sort of political circles. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, and like in JF, for instance, I, I mean, these people were so haughty. You know, when they're yeah. talking about their Bitcoin, you know, yeah. and boy, you just, you know, revenge is sweet. <laughs> it's just, you love, you love a good sort of uh, takedown. Yeah, so you can only buy $10,000 a year, but go buy $10,000 Series I uh, bond mm -hmm. and you'll be sticking it to Putin. 
Now, are they tax deductible too? Can you, uh, write them? you have to pay federal tax, but not state tax. No, but let's say you pen ten grand on the bond. Can you write that ten grand off? No. So I don't know about four hundred one k's and all that stuff, but mm-hmm. but treasure the the I bond, bro. It's totally the way to go. Well, I'm going to look into it because uh, that that does sound marvelous. But uh, is it enough? So like, it's just the beginning. We've only just begun. <laughs> You're the economics dude. You should know all this stuff. Economics what? isn't about isn't about investing. It's about you know theory. Political economy, right? But the, the changes in the world, the global political economy, the Peter Zehans kind of stuff, you know. He's long the U.S. He he thinks the U.S. is going to come out on top of all of this. So, yeah, I uh, mean, buy these bonds. When the evening comes, we smile. So much of life ahead. We'll find a place where there's room to grow. And yes, we've just begun. So you have to hold it to maturity? Is that the whole thing? I mean, uh, if it, you withdraw it early, you have to give up three months of interest. Three months. Oh, only interest, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there may be other restrictions. I that that was the only one that like jumped out at me. Well, can you borrow against it? I guess if an emergency, could you borrow against it? I don't know. I mean, I I, I just I just socked away ten thousand dollars, and you know I feel good about it, bro. I'm, I'm hedging against inflation, and it's totally safe because I'm betting on the United States of America, the greatest yeah. country in the world. Well, get this, Luke. Not only I've I've, I've like paid off all my credit card debt like six months. Ago. Wow, way to go, bro! Uh, but I'm also, <coughs> I'm also taking advantage of all these offers where they offer you two hundred bucks if you yeah. if you spent right. So basically, yeah, yeah. I've already cashed in one two hundred dollar bonus, and I'm working on my second one right now. So I could be in a situation where the credit card companies are paying me. Wouldn't that, wouldn't be, yeah, wouldn't and, and the only good? reason they do this is out of the goodness of their heart. It's not because it's been found to be economically beneficial to them. That's right. And who do you think? Where do you think I'm putting this float? These floating sessions on? Ah, wow. So I'm investing in my health, my dude. Yeah, I mean that's, that's I, I the greatest love of all. But I set it up so it just pays immediately. I pay the full balance every month. So I'm not going to pay a cent of interest. Yeah. Nor should anybody else. I mean, I get 5% back on my Amazon Chase credit card. So I buy almost everything on Amazon, get 5% back, bro. And I pay it in full every month. I feel like we're sharing we're, horizons that are new to we're, us. Watching we're soaring with the eagle. Well. We're, like, we're like a pair of eagles soaring over the, over the, over the Himalayas. You know? And when the evening comes, we smile. So much of life ahead. We'll find a place where there's room to grow. And yes, we've just begun. Yeah. What a great song. Yeah. Winning, winning. So, so, uh, uh, so you're Armageddon, you're this, um, you, you mentioned something this morning. Um, oh, the apocalypse. That, yeah, but the seventh, seventh day Adventist. Adventist. Yeah. Yeah, but there was a, uh, uh, 1840 something. 1844, something. they expected Jesus to come back because that was 2300 years since Ezra, uh, Gave, gave Israel like the full Torah in 440, 456 BCE. So, yeah. So, 20... this, was in, this was in New England and they didn't even plant crops, right? This was like a big disaster. Yeah. It was the, yeah. the, the Millerite disappointment, the great disappointment. And so, Seventh day Adventism grew out of that? Yes. So, that's uh, my did background. Other, did other sects grow out of that as well? Yes, but the Adventists were the most prominent. Okay. 
Because when I was in grade school in New England, we had shakers. We had like shaker communities around. You know what those are? Uh, a little bit. Their shakers are, um, uh, I think they're celibate or they're uh, antinatalist. And they're kind of like uh, Southern Baptists that get really emotional and you know, handle serpents. But they're sort of uh, kind of more subdued New England variety. And they just kind of sh- shake and get filled with the spirit of the Lord when they, when they pray. So, and they make great furniture. So, anyway. <clears throat> so, yeah. Uh, that was an interesting detail. I, I'd forgotten about that. I didn't know the two were connected. Then, then no you find, uh, like, I, I find secular life just too banal. Like, I need the, the excitement and the, possibly you could call it the irrationalism of religion. But you find with the banality of the secular life? I, um, I, see, I see the sacred and the profane and the profane and the sacred, bro. I, I, <clears throat> I walk in both worlds and I've harmonized them. Everything is your emotions. Everything that you think you need, it's just emotional blockage, Right. All this stuff, all these narratives you tell yourself, these are just tensions in your body, and these tensions create stories in your mind. And so the mind reinforces the story, and then the, the, the story enforces the body, the body feeds back into the mind. So you're in this loop, and you need to break the loop, bro. So I, there's, all of these ideas are artificial categories. You need to get beyond these categories. and get, you got to get into the heart of being, my dude. So when you look up in the sky, is it an apricot sky? (laughs) I keep my feet on the ground. No, it's azure. Reach for the stars. (laughs) The expansiveness of California, man. This is is California at its best, man. When the weather is perfect and, you know, the breeze is blowing, you're not sweltering. Do you ever live on the East Coast, Luke? Yes, I I lived uh, eight months in Orlando. I lived three months in Baltimore. And I spent three weeks on New York's Upper West Side in August of 1994. Now, okay, so that must have been hell, right? It must have been sweltering heat. Uh, I mean, it was, a, yeah, it was a bit muggy, but it was my first and only time in New York. And uh, I had an heiress putting me up, and she gave me spending money every day. Oh, that story was interesting. So what neighborhood were you in? Uh, I think 80th and Broadway. 80th and Broadway. Okay. So I lived in Chelsea for three weeks, which is different. But, uh, yeah, so you didn't really take with the New York thing? Or... Uh, I mean, no, I enjoyed it. I, was just, I, I just don't have as many heiresses pursuing me these days. Like, uh, the women aren't so, as generous with their favors as they used to be. So how did you blow it with her? That could have been your ticket, bro. You could have you probably well, misplayed that one. On the first day, I realized I didn't want a relationship with her. So I started uh-huh. placing singles ads when I was in New York. And uh-huh. the singles ads where you like leave a phone message. And so oh, okay. she saw some of my singles ads and she called the phone number and then she got rather annoyed with me. And then her therapist told her that I was using her. Now, were you a two in this? This wasn't like a Harold and Maude situation. Was she in your age group or was she? I, like, I think she might have been five years older than me. So I was 27. She was 32. Oh, that's fine. Okay. It just wasn't Harold and Maude. That's, that's what it gets weird. No. <laughs> Do you ever see that movie? Yes. Yeah. It's pretty uh, good. Once, once is oh. enough. Once. 
There's good line, a couple good lines in it. But that guy ended up living in his car, the guy that wrote that screenplay. Hey. So how many of your close friends are gay, bro? Uh, none. Wow. No. Now I used to have I used to have a roommate. Well, I used to have a roommate. I used to have I, in Boston I had a room two roommates, one of whom was gay. The other one was questionable. And then years later it became clear and he announced to me that he's gay. <laughs> so all those years I was living with him thinking he was hetero he was in fact gay well put it this way he was sort of a nick fuentes kind of hetero you know what i mean right he, he wasn't like uh he's not the world's most he wasn't the world's most physical guy yeah I, I remember i went to this roommate matching service and and then i went out they gave me all these suggested matches and everyone i called was gay and so i came yeah. back to the service and i said this is interesting. Everyone I call is gay. And they said, oh, we automatically put you in the gay section. <laughs> How'd that make you feel? Uh, so I could have stayed with a guy who was like a professor of ethics at UCLA. We had this really stimulating conversation over the phone. And I mean, I told him I was straight, but his concern with me that I was a writer and he didn't think I could be relied on to pay the rent. So I ended up staying with a gay guy who ran a nude cleaning service. Like he'd send yeah. maids out to clean your house in the nude. And now were these male maids or female? No, maids? female, female maids yeah. who'd go out to clean your house in the nude. And so I, I stayed with him. And I remember early on, some I opened up the door and there's a dude holding flowers, which was for my roommate. And I had to like pass through his room to get to the shower in the morning when I, I went to work at KTLA Channel Five. I was in human resources, and so yeah, I'd come through the room and they'd be uh, that. That's a that's a perfect your perfect perfectly suited position for you, human resources. Continue, sorry. And I, I remember the first night, like uh, uh, the first the first when I moved in that day, we went out and saw the new Al Goldstein movie, the documentary I think on Al Goldstein and. And then came back, he cooked dinner, and then he like lit candles. Yeah. And, and we had a we had a really nice, I think, lentil dinner. But I was a little yeah. concerned about the candles. I'd never had a guy like candles for me, and I kept emphasizing to him how straight I was. Yeah. And I I, it, I mean he was very respectful of my boundaries. Mm -hmm. I mean he, he kicked me out after a few months, but <sighs> God, that's weird. That's weird. It's so awkward. It's so painful. Oh. Um, I just had a question for you, Luke. I, I was... Oh, shit. Oh, no. It was a good one, too, Luke. It was funny. You would have laughed. It'll have to come back to me. I'm sorry. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, was he... Did he just think... Did he just not believe you were straight and thought he could overcome it with Grant? No, no. He, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, not, not what he said, but I guess he wanted his boyfriend to move in. Uh, yeah, boyfriend, right? Like, these were like, you know, those jokes are so true. I mean, this is my boyfriend, you know. What is it? They last like a month, two months, these relationships. No, no, I mean, this was like two months. <laughs> no, I'm talking about gay relationships in general. They generally oh, yeah, don't. yeah. No, this one was special. This one was the real deal. Yeah. This so wasn't you know one of those tawdry ones. 
And yeah, I developed a natural immunity against monkeypox just from sharing the same shower. You oh, know that oh, joke. I got a. Uh, go ahead. No, well, it's a joke. I think I learned it on your show from KMG. Like, what do <clears throat> what do lesbians bring on the a second U-Haul. date? U haul. Yeah. <laughs> what do what do gay men bring on the second date? What second date? <laughs> you got it. So I what got a, best I got a strike uh, on from Friday's show from YouTube. They said I was cyberbullying. So apparently I was cyberbullying Joe Biden. No. <laughs> yeah, I got a strike for bullying the president of the United States over taking showers with his daughter. Oh, God. Uh, must have come hey. across really judgmental. Now, did you see this? Um, I, I sent it. I sent you a link. I don't know if you saw it or not, but the uh, call between Project Veritas leaked a link of the call between Elon Musk and the existing Twitter staff, like an all-company meeting between Elon Musk and Twitter staff. Did you see this? Uh, I saw it, but I haven't uh, haven't listened to it. Any any highlights? Um, <clears throat> there's no sort of bombshells, but it's very clear. Um, it's it's very interesting. I found it very interesting because you have like effectively. You have the existing staff, and they hold a certain amount of power because they know how all the gears work, right? And then you have Elon Musk, so who is theoretically going to be the owner of the company. But given the, the conversation, it was like it was between two equals. It wasn't as though Elon was sort of saying jump and them saying how high. It was like, it was like Elon being forced to justify himself to them. I thought, I thought it was an interesting... Uh, dynamic and you know it was all it was all the standard stuff all the woke concerns what do we do about moderation what do you want to do about work from home you know it was sort of interesting inside baseball but it's very funny now that uh we're in a world where you can never assume a meeting (laughs) is completely private you know you can you're always going to have the doubt that it's going to be broadcast on the internet now or a sexual Uh, encounter like you never know when you're going to be blackmailed by, like, China. Exactly. exactly like, you, you, say, you say the wrong thing, like, in the height of passion, and then it, like, gets leaked on the Internet, and your reputation is stained forever. It's stained, I tell you. Okay. That's another point. Did you, in your, uh, I can't believe you, you, you played an NPR clip this morning, and the correspondent identified herself as, oh, what was it, like, um, uh, the ethnic, oh yeah, the ethnic uh, domestic terrorism, ex- yeah, ex- correspondent, right? Yeah, or something like that. Like the domestic extremist correspondent, yeah. something like that. But it, aren't you the most qualified person for that position in the world? Don't you? Isn't that your job? Don't is there anybody in this world that understands these fringe political movements better than you? That's that's a good point. I guess I need I need more like black self confidence. Well, couldn't you march in there and just go to just go to NPR and say, "Look at look at this body of work I produced. I deserve this job. I can raise this bar so much higher. I can bring a much more uh, nuanced Thoughtful. analysis. Yeah, yeah. Hire me. I want two hundred grand a year, and I want you know I want I want an Uber back and forth to work on NPR. 
Yeah, my, this is what my, you... my conversion hasn't fully taken yet. Like, I'm too much of a Seventh-day Adventist to say any of those oh, things. That's what I was going to ask you. How old were you when you converted to, to, to Orthodox Judaism? When did you uh, make 27. Your and what... 27. All right, what prompted you to make this decision? I mean, did you never actually spoke about that, I don't believe? Uh, did you... Listening to Dennis Prager, like, that, that flipped a switch. And then I remember I, I went home to Australia, and I was living with my brother, who's secular. And it just seemed like secular life was so banal. And Seventh-day Adventism didn't make sense to me. And, and Judaism was just exciting. And I could kind of wrap my head around it. And, and I just liked the Jews I met. And so... <laughs> so it was gradual. It yeah, it was uh, gradual. It didn't happen overnight. But, but Dennis Prager was the catalyst. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I see. He was, he right. was my no. daddy figure. Uh, are your siblings still in the church? Or did they leave uh, they both left. My brother's an atheist, and uh, my sister is not a Seventh-day Adventist. Wow, I'm getting a lot of noise. What's what's going on there, bro? Is it coming from me? Yeah, that's better. Oh, sorry. Yeah, well, my, my sister's up. a Christian, but she's not a Seventh-day Adventist. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, but your father uh, held on to it for it. Yeah, I mean, he founded his own denomination, essentially. Was he ministry? Was he technic Was he technically excommunicated, or did he? No, was he was he just removed from church mini uh, ministry. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Um, Though I think when he went to preach at a Baptist seminary, I think he became employed by a Baptist seminary, and to do that, I think he had to give up his membership in a particular Seventh Day Adventist church, even though he hadn't, you know, attended that church in twenty five years. So when did the big uh, uh, when did the big schism go down between your father? 1980. And your dad? 1980. I was 14. Now you were in California by then, right? Yep, I was in Pacific Union College, Napa Valley. And um, did he know this would happen? Did he know he was being provocative, or did it was it like uh, a surprise? Uh, I, I think it took him by surprise. I mean, I think he should have known, but I think he was oblivious that this is the way it was going down. You know, I'm sure other people saw it much more clearly than he did. Now, uh, was he emotionally impacted by this? Was it like yes. a big crisis in the family or is it just a, it was just a, a work yes. matter? No, it was, yeah. it was a big crisis. I mean, he'd lived his whole life in the church. And uh, after, after he lost that position, his life became a lot lonelier, but he he was very strong that he was right and the church was wrong. And essentially, unless the church came around to him, he, he wouldn't rejoin. And so it was a big gaping wound in the Seventh-day Adventist community as a result of my father going off and thousands of people kind of following him. So your father was quite influential in the church. Like, like what, like upper top? top echelon in the church or pretty close he, he was he was influential i mean probably thousands of people were af affected and, and moved with him hmm. that's interesting it's, it's, he, it's he wasn't a, he wasn't a micro streamer like me he he had much more of a you know a, a nick fuentes type following <laughs> oh that was the other thing so uh Jesse Lee Peterson, did you? What do you think of this whole embroilio? I, I don't believe that he's gay. There's just nothing gay about Jesse Lee Peterson to me. 
but you saw the testament. I did not. Things. I did not watch it. I just heard about it. Oh, it was on the Kino Casino. Excerpts were. They were pretty. Um, I would say they're pretty damning. I mean, if I had to guess. So you I think Jesse Lee Peterson is being down low, brother? <laughs> I'm, I'm sad to say, bro. Uh, uh, it's hard to come away. I wouldn't say it's a slam dunk. Pardon the pun. <laughs> right. But I'd say, uh, there's like two, three, four different people with differing yet similar tales. It's if there were one person making an allegation, it'd be one thing. But to have a handful of people make similar allegations, I don't know. It's hard to walk away coming not thinking that it's that it's true. It's hard as to believe because he does not come off as gay. I, I totally get you there, but unless this is a very well choreographed attempt to bring him down, it's very well choreographed. Yeah. That was just, no. Hey, what time is it? Uh, I gotta look at the phone one sec. The sun's in my ass. Uh, isn't that a John Denver oh. song? Oh, it's 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 almost six, Luke. We've 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 wild away an hour. Okay, bro. I, I gotta get to my appointment. Okay. Take care, all my right. friend. Blessings. Shalom. Blessings. Shalom. Love love is all around us. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay, thank you, Elliot Blatt. So there's a new documentary out on Netflix. And really shocking stuff. Uh, I never realized this, but there are people out there who use the internet to do bad things. So there's a Netflix series, Web of Make-Believe, Death, Lies, and the Internet. So I've learned that we all have a monster inside, and I've also learned that people use the internet to do bad things. Now, that we all have a monster inside just makes sense because if we didn't have a monster inside, we wouldn't be here, right? We evolved to have a monster inside because those who didn't have a monster inside, they didn't pass on their genes. They just got wiped out because there are situations that call for a monster. So some people are monsters in the bedroom. Other people are monsters in the boardroom. Other people are monsters on the battlefield. Other people are monsters in the playing field. Other, people's, other people are monsters at work. But there's absolutely a necessity to have a monster inside. You just need to be discreet with how you display it and how you use it. Just like there's nothing wrong with having a preference for your in-group. But in most situations, having a visceral loathing and hatred for out-groups will not be in your best interests. So here's an excerpt from this new Netflix series. And this is you, Samantha Frohman. But I think the internet made it much more possible. Whoa. Breitbart identified Richard Spencer and Steve Saylor as the intellectual leadership running the websites considered to be the center of alt-right. Steve Saylor is a blogger who's a kind of intellectualized racist. And one of the th arguments Moretz. he often made is until Republicans openly act as a white nationalist or at least a, a white identity party, we're not going to win a, a big enough share of the white vote to keep winning elections. Bush barely won, didn't even really win. Romney loses, John McCain loses, and as demographics turn against us, we're just gonna keep losing. And 
Other people were seeing that trend, but what they were arguing was because of the changing demographics of the country, we need to appeal to these new constituencies. And Saylor was able to read those numbers a different way and say, no, all you have to do to be a successful Republican presidential candidate is activate white people's racial identity and speak out more loudly against tolerant immigration policies. So this is the basic concept behind a long-term sales strategy for Republicans. You want more of the kind of people likely to vote for your party in the country and fewer of the kind of people likely to vote for the other party. That is scary, scary stuff. If you just win more white votes, you can win. You don't have to worry about winning minority votes at all. The American I can't believe people think this way. Is dead. No way. Bring it back. But if I get elected president, I will bring it back. Bigger and better and stronger than ever before. And we will make America great again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Donald Trump. So Samantha Froelich, she's the Samantha who's prominently featured in Andrew Maranta's book. She's been featured in all sorts of news media. And uh, she hooked up with Richard Spencer. She had Elliot Klein as a boyfriend, Eli Mosley. So she is the focus of an entire episode of this new Netflix series. Monument in at least five states, critics say the statutes celebrate slavery and secession. These Confederate symbols now are at the center of a bitter debate about how we define our past as we move forward as a nation. Some of the leaders with Identity Euro but saw that Confederate statues were this controversial topic. The motion carries three to two. In a vote 10 months in the making, the Charlottesville City Council approves a motion to move the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee out of downtown. One thing that they wanted to try out was having a rally. And so the leaders in IE picked Charlottesville, Virginia, because it's kind of right in the middle of the eastern seaboard. I want to live in a world of the white men who created our civilization. So this is not the Charlottesville rally that everyone knows. This is not the Unite the Right rally. That would happen a couple months later in August. Andrew Morant speaking. This one in May. It's basically the same thing. They rally around protesting the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue. So Samantha Froelich gets tremendous media attention. Uh, How come... I'm just curious. How come Julia Yofi doesn't get any attention? So Richard Spencer's ex-girlfriend. So you've got various female journalists who are writing critically of Richard Spencer by day, including Julia Yofi, and sucking his dick by night. And how come nobody ever talks about that? Like, how come there's no media attention to the Jennifer, uh, the Julia Yofi, Richard Spencer relationship from 2016? Right? It was it was widely known by by people in Washington D.C. How come nobody ever talks about Richard Spencer, Julia Yofi? How come no one ever talks about other female journalists who? cover Richard Spencer by day and then sleep with him by night. And this series also doesn't talk about how Samantha Froelich slept with Richard Spencer. You'd think that would possibly be relevant. They carry tiki torches. They try to wear the identity Europa colors of white and teal. 
They want to awaken the consciousness of the white masses. This is their kind of semi-delusional dream. What they want is a world in which we do not exist. There was no media coverage. There was no real violence. People went, did their speeches, had a banquet, did a torchlit rally at nighttime. It was my first in-person activism. And I thought that I was going to go and just be a fly on the wall. I was a woman, why would anyone care? And uh, it did not turn out like that at all. Everyone recognized me. Everyone wanted a picture with me. Everyone wanted to talk to me. Men coming up and saying, my girlfriend and wife joined because of things that you've said. They're so happy with the work that you're doing. So she became an organizer. And guess what? People like to do things that make them feel good. People love to do things that make them feel important. People like to connect with other people. People like to create a shared reality with other people. When we connect with others, create a shared reality with others, get into sync with others, we get inspired, we get motivated, we get energized. And out of that connection always comes an ethic. There's no connection without an ethic, without a morality that follows from it. So... Why do people do what they want to do? Why do people do what they do? Because it makes them feel good. And so the alt-right rose because it was a vehicle for a lot of people feeling good, gave them excitement, meaning, purpose, and human connection. And then why did the alt-right fall? Because belonging to it started creating a lot more pain and hassle and aggravation than good feelings. So will religion win out against secularism? Well, it will if it provides more good feelings, more human connection, better community than secular alternatives. Secular alternatives will win out if they make people feel better than religion does. Like will a synagogue boom? A synagogue will boom if it gives people a good feeling from going there, if it provides a place for human connection, for getting on the same page with others, for creating a shared reality, uh, participating in rituals together, the more intense the connection, uh, obviously the stronger the bond people will form and the more intense and durable will be the moral commitments that come from those bonds. Doing and it's so great and you're such a good woman. It felt surreal to be a part of a group where... All right, so she grew up, she had one parent who was an alcoholic and another parent who was a workaholic. So she had a pretty lonely life. She had a lot of drinking. She was desperate for human connection and she found human connection through Identity Europa, just as other people find human connection through belonging to a group of heroin addicts or find human connection through being a part of the porn industry or part of a neo-Nazi movement or an Antifa movement. Right? People want to belong, people want identity. And people who don't have an identity are just going to be drifting and vulnerable to cults or other movements that offer them an identity and offer them love people want love bro i mean i don't want to say i felt like a celebrity but that i would say that's the closest to it yeah you give people the opportunity to feel like a celebrity they'll do it why do i live stream so much it makes me feel good it makes me feel important it makes me feel happy it makes me feel like a celebrity all right so i want to feel important we all want to feel important you give people an opportunity to feel important and you can you can be a fisher of men and women but that i had felt at the time it was overwhelming for me and i loved it 
I wanted to quit my job. I wanted to quit my whole life and just travel around the country and do activism. And pretty much everyone would, right? You give someone an opportunity to feel like a celebrity, to feel important, to feel connected with other people, to get good feelings, to get excited, to, to make friends, to be somebody. Most people would want to quit their job and go participate. There were a bunch of different after parties going on, and the largest one was at this one Airbnb, and pretty much everyone was invited. A lot of the podcasts that I had either heard of or listened to, the hosts were at this party. So you feel like you're meeting celebrities. I'm meeting these people that have taught me how to think this way. And uh... Imagine you are the main focus of a 30-man gangbang. Like, imagine all that attention and, and love and, and excitement and human connection that you would get. It'd make you weak in the knees. Uh -huh. You know, in walks Richard, Richard Spencer. This country does belong to white people, culturally, politically, socially, everything. We define what America is. Richard, especially at that time, he was the gateway. He was the guy in the blazer that made Nazism get a spread in Esquire. Everyone quieted down. One just starts shouting like, attention, and he shouts Sieg, everyone shouts Heil. Okay, so people are participating in a common ritual, an intense ritual, an ultra ritual, a deviant ritual, a dangerous ritual, and creating bonds with each other, and out of these bonds come an ethic. So you, you think these people were getting energized, seek hiling? They were getting incredibly energized. And if there aren't better, healthier alternatives out there, people without an identity will, will often gravitate to anything that makes them feel something, something that makes them feel good. The whole point of being at one of these... So Richard's never really taken much accountability for leading people into activity that that uh, may well have a negative effect on them for the rest of their lives, all right? You're leading Sieg Heiling, and there's always going to be video of that. There are going to be pictures of that that haunt hundreds of people, all right, have participated in these Sieg Heilings to Richard Spencer. So he gets an ego gratification out of it, and they get a ruined life. So it seems like that's something that uh, Richard might want to take some accountability for these house parties is to be able to be with the hardcore of the hardcore and to not have to dog whistle, to not have to hide behind any lingo, to not have to say the public sanitize. Also, the things that you do at a party are not necessarily truly reflective of who you are. It's not like there's a certain situation that reveals your true colors. Oh, you go to a party and that's who you really are. Their activity and their words at this party are no more necessarily reflective of who they are than when they go to church, when they go to visit grandma, when they go to work, when they go to school, right? It's not like we, we should just privilege what you say and do at a party when everyone else is doing something crazy and you follow along with that. That's not necessarily your true self. There is no true self. Who we are entirely depends on the situation we're in. ...mainstream friendly version, but to say the most shocking the most heinous version of the thing. Wow. I mean, when when did people ever 
get excited and get energy and have a good time saying something shocking? When have people ever been attracted to saying the most shocking things possible? I think that's pretty endemic to the human condition. Doesn't necessarily reveal that they're really burning core Nazis at heart. All right. Uh, playing with Nazi stuff is, is something that people in the West have done for, for 70 years because precisely because it's so taboo. Right? It doesn't necessarily reveal that their true self is, is a Nazi. So Morant takes it. Oh, this is their true selves finally revealing themselves. You want to say? Whoa. And the, the beating heart of it, always. So you either rule or you are ruled, right? You want your people to survive. You want your family to survive. You want what you love to survive. Then the stronger you make your group, the more likely it will be to survive. So long as in the process of making your group stronger, you don't increase antagonism towards your group. So we're all locked in an iron cage together. Right? There's nothing wrong with the will to rule, but if you seek out and display your will to rule, as Richard Spencer has done, obviously that's highly destructive both to him, to the people who join him, and to the various groups that he has, he has joined. So wanting to rule, not necessarily a bad thing. Having a monster inside, not necessarily a bad thing. Having some resentment and enmity towards outgroups, not necessarily a bad thing, but you want to keep it in check, right? You don't want your, your id and your, you know, your flamboyance and your desire to be the center of attention to overrule and undercut your well-being. So nothing inherently wrong with wanting to rule, but you walk down the street and start beating people with a cricket bat, that's probably not going to be an effective strategy. On the other hand, you start a business and you provide a valuable service and you employ hundreds of people then you can get some of those feelings of ruling while at the same time being a pro-social person. Is the Nazi stuff. All these young men who are idolizing Richard Spencer and looking at him as their kind of fascist overlord, they want to impress him. They want to kind of show off for him. Wanting to enslave people is a bad thing. Yeah, but the more intense the group conflict you're in, the more it would make rational sense that you'd have negative feelings towards the outgroup. So most Israelis wish that the Arabs and the Muslims and the Palestinians would disappear. Most Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims around the Jewish state of Israel wish that the Jewish state would disappear. It would be weird if they felt otherwise. On the other hand, going through life with this burning hot, intense hatred of outgroups in most situations doesn't serve you. In some situations, it does serve you. You're going to war, it probably serves you. My father, throughout his life, referred to the Japanese as Japs. And I remember as a kid, I would always try to correct him. No, no, we don't say Japs, Dad. We say Japanese. But my father came of age during World War II, so the Japanese were always Japs. And so you have certain intense emotions whipped up in, in a time of war, and that's going to very much 
lead you into negative feelings towards our groups. On the other hand, my father didn't let that overwhelm him. He didn't get into trouble for anti-Japanese sentiment. These would just be in private remarks. He would just say Japs. But he visited Japan. He has a family member who's Japanese. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't allow this enmity of the Japanese to damage his life. And so they see Kyle at Richard, and I'm looking around, and I see Richard, and I'm watching him lap up this adoration. And right, that's so unusual, right? Because who else would uh, want admiration? I mean, I can't believe that Richard Spencer enjoys admiration. That's, that's truly, truly shocking, right? Everybody loves admiration. And, you know, he looks at me and just gives me that, that accusatory glance of, like, and you? And so I did. I like jumped up and like see Kyle. I just went with it. I, I completely lost myself in that energy. So that is the first time I see Kyle. Um, which is a very common thing in the alt-right. Like don't don't let this whole, you know, suit and tie thing fool you. I think that's just a line that a lot of people would know not to cross. Yeah, normal people with a normal level of human connection, but every in-group looks weird to an out-group, right? The more you get into stamp collecting, the more you become a Dallas Cowboys fan, the more you get into Bitcoin, uh, the weirder you're going to look to out-groups. The more intense your in-group commitment and identity, the weirder you're going to look to out-groups. So it's not just something that uh, troubles members of the, the alt-right. So she never talks here about sleeping with Richard Spencer while she has boyfriend uh, Eli Mosley. Us. And also there's the element that once you have crossed that line, then they have even more leverage over you. You either know there's footage of you doing that or you fear that there's footage of you doing that. So then now you are even more motivated to stay in because now you have more to lose. Wow, who would imagine that the more you do something, the easier it is to keep doing something? I, I never would have thought that. The more you socialize with a certain in-group, the easier it is to keep identifying with that in-group. This is shocking, absolutely unique to the alt-right. Two weeks after that party, I was invited to go to that book burning. And I'm invigorated by this. It felt good to be a part of something. So for most people, within 20 minutes of setting foot on a porn set, everything that happens on the porn set becomes normal. So we all become desensitized and we all adapt to the situations that we find ourselves in, particularly if we're in those situations with friends. The first March in May was Identity Europa almost entirely. It was such a success that a few people had decided they wanted to do it again. August 12. 2017. They say, okay, we'll go back to Charlottesville, we'll bring back the tiki torches, we'll just make it bigger, and we'll have a wider coalition. Right, so if something works once, you just make it bigger, and it's going to be fantastic. If taking one, one supplement works out well, then just triple the dose. What could go wrong? Of groups. This is Andrew Morant providing the commentary, and generally pretty commonsensical commentary. And so... Traditionalist Workers' Party. was created called Charlottesville 2.0. Identity Europa, TRS. One of the places where the organizers were talking and organizing a lot of the logistics of the event. 
was on this platform where gamers chat called Discord. And Discord allows anyone to set up a new room, invite anyone to it and have- So have you ever experienced saying something behind someone's back and they overhear you, right? So you generally learn in childhood that anything you say about someone is, is most likely to get back to the person. And I mean, have you ever sent a text complaining about somebody to that person accidentally? So why is it people tend to avoid saying things that could bite them in the ass? Have a chat amongst whoever's there. It's primarily used by gamers, but it also became popular amongst the far right. Somebody had gotten in that private chat, that Discord chat. So you just have to look at the results and Antifa has been 100 times more effective than the alt-right. They're just 100 times more competent. And scraping the logs and provided that to an independent journalism collective called Unicorn Riot. Uh, independent journalism collective? They're an Antifa organization. Unicorn Riot is not some independent journalistic collective. Right? They're a, a communist activist group but scary music very scary Ooh. I'm I am a member of Unicorn Riot we report nationally on issues of like racism environmental justice they, they just report they're, they're fair and balanced they're, they're independent journalists guys they're not just uh, communist activists this, um, and other social issues I like to keep my identity secret i right so when you expose the identities of your enemies and you're able to at the same time maintain the privacy of your own identity that's probably a pretty effective strategy want these neo-nazis to think that the person walking down the street next to them might be the next person who's going to yeah that's the only reason why he wants to keep his own identity secret it's not because he's looking to benefit his own life and to minimize problems in his own life it's because it's because of the cause it's not not his own self-interest that he's looking out for here just expose your identity you see that the far right is communicating on discord and you go after their chat logs we obtain them through some technical means and then we have a public server where we publish these logs um, for people to be able to read through them because if we ever publish his private communications, right, there's nothing that he's ever said in private that he'd be ashamed of, of sharing. I, I doubt it. That's another reason he keeps his identity secret, because if people don't know who he is, then they can't rummage through his private life and find embarrassing things to share. Everybody's got embarrassing things in their life that could be shared publicly and deeply damage them. Valuable because they're, there's a reason that they're not public. When you finally got into these chat logs, what did you see? We saw very explicit calls for violence, especially during short. Yeah, there were a lot of explicit calls for violence in these chat logs, and the people who participated in them were stupid to do so. Talking about wanting to kill all the brown ones, to kill all the Jews, like looking forward to having a, a racial war, looking forward to busting skulls, looking forward to breaking the law. Right, you write this stuff out uh, on Discord, then you're an idiot. And 
people who expose you are probably doing you a service and society a service in the long run. Right? You need to learn a lesson. You don't, you don't participate this way online, talking about how much you're looking forward to kill, killing people. Right? You're an idiot and you deserve to be exposed if you're posting online about how you're looking forward to killing innocent people. Charlottesville, very explicit calls to run over protesters with cars. Are you saying that you found chat logs that called for people to run over? Yeah, let's, let's be honest. Running over protesters with cars has been an alt-right meme since 2015. Right? It wasn't just something that happened for the first time, shockingly, about August 12 in 2017, Charlottesville. It was an alt-right meme that may well have influenced uh, Mr. Field's decision in addition to Antifa like beating on his car. Like Antifa played a significant role in creating an intense, frightening atmosphere where violence would be much more likely to happen. Over people with a car yeah. before Charlottesville. Yeah. Take it even further and they talk about using farming equipment like huge industrial combines to actually do it to like not just one person but to like whole groups. Identity Europe was very careful not to say anything, you know, too far right, too explicit in public. Well, every strongly identifying in-group that I know has been quite careful about the difference between speaking publicly and speaking privately. So every strongly identifying in-group that I've belonged to has said much harsher and nastier and crueler and more socially unacceptable things privately than they say publicly. So this is universal. It's not something that's unique to the alt-right. I've been known to say insensitive things privately. And then you read the private chat logs and you see a lot of racism and just some of the worst kinds of like bigotry, um, misogyny. Doxing is revealing the personal information of a person, where they live, where they work. It's a tactic that's very polarizing, um, but it is sort of a way of um, intimidating people. Yeah, and he keeps his identity secret to minimize the chances that it happens to him. What's shocking is just how open people are with their viewpoints, especially... It's not shocking, right? When people think that they're speaking in confidence, they say all sorts of things. Given that there were, like, teachers, EMTs, soldiers, police... Oh, my God, just imagine there are teachers, EMTs, soldiers, and police who say uncouth and shocking things privately. Wow, you could just knock me over with a kippah right now. Police officers, including police officers that were stationed in schools. In one <laughs> this is really shocking. I, I always thought the police officers stationed in schools were just the smartest, the brightest, the, just the best people. You mean that uh, all police officers aren't geniuses? You're saying that not all police officers have uh, a perfect sense of propriety 24 hours a day? This is truly shocking. One case, there was a member of Identity Europa. He was in a school, like, talking about how I'm going to red pill children. Wow, this guy wanted to spread what he believed in to other people. I mean, that's really shocking. Whoever heard of someone who believed in something so strongly that he wanted to influence other people? I mean, I always thought that if you believed in something really strongly, you just naturally kept it to yourself and you didn't sh want to share that with anyone else. This is creepy. Red pill meaning turning them on to racist ideology. Oh, scary. Did you use a pseudonym when you were on Discord? 
Yes, I did. What was your pseudonym? <laughs> Fuck. Oh, my... <laughs> my pseudonym in the alt-right was Nora Fox. Nora Fox, whoa. Shocking. Oh. Why? Oh. Why? What's, the, just, what's the emotion here? What are you going through right now? Um. Women get so triggered no by white Sharia. My name was in the movie. She writes. And I, that's just like a. To Feminism is gross. Not just a former part of myself, but like what this I called myself, awesome. who I was in that movement. Not what I was, not how I felt, but who I was in that movement. That it just. I, You're a big deal in that movement. All right. We all want to feel like a big deal. We all want to feel like we're living from the inside. We all want to feel connected. We all want other people who like us, respect us, look up to us and want to connect with us. I just have never done that before. This is literally the first time. <laughs> this is like ever, a lot. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm like doxing myself like a lot right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't really say. So it talks earlier in the show how she was drinking pretty much every night. Uh, prior to getting into the movement and in her years in the movement. So heavy drinking went hand in hand with her participation in Identity Europa. Anything profound that I... Oh, she writes here on this Discord, you barely even count as human, you're Polish. I'm German and Lithuanian. Disavow. Talk a lot of bullshit, but I knew the language. I did dance. I said the words and... I use that name. What's the difference between red pilling children and teaching children gender ideology? Well, obviously one is good and one is bad, bro. We knew that there was a rally being planned, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. We could see them growing in size and growing in confidence to the point where they were openly organizing a white supremacist rally online. They had flyers that they were circulating. And, it, and who would imagine that uh, organizing some some huge rally like this might attract some opposition, such as Antifa? All of a sudden seemed less like a thing that was happening in some cobwebby corner of 4chan, but it was happening on the main social media platforms. But it was such a mess right off the bat. No one had the same discipline or aesthetic or beliefs even. Wow, just imagine that people who join dissident movements tend to often lack discipline, right? The old saw about white nationalists, one-third criminals, one-third gay, one-third Nazi, like to play dress-up. There are people saying, well, look, don't bring any Nazi flags. And then some people saying, well, I can fly whatever flag I want. So they're having this debate from a pragmatic standpoint, not from a standpoint of, oh, And, and just imagine that... Uh, Hundreds of people thought it'd be a great idea to go join an event where people are debating whether or not it's a good idea to bring a Nazi flag. I'm so shocked and scandalized that someone in my movement thinks Nazi flags are cool, but from a very calculated, pragmatic standpoint of, will this backfire on us? If we have this big rally and people are bringing swastikas or showing up as a legion of skinheads, will that be counterproductive? And people wanted their uniforms to be at the forefront they wanted their shields and sticks wow who could imagine that there would be ego involved who could imagine that people wanted their group to be in the forefront surely this is just unique to the alt-right 
no, no other aspect of human culture has these divisions. Or whatever it is that they used, they wanted to be the authority on it, and no Based one stick was willing to work with each other. Just all of it, all of it was chaos from start to finish. Wow, marginalized movement attracting marginalized people who tend to organize in a chaotic fashion. Shocking. Wouldn't have expected Samantha that. Samantha is living with this new guy. Eli and Klein, Eli Mosley. He is one of the leaders of Identity Europa. He is one of the main organizing forces behind this Unite the Right rally. He's kind of a big deal in the movement. Huge and deal. At that point in time, this person that I was forming this relationship with was doxxed. So I offered this person a place to crash, and this person came and just like never left. And she's starting to feel like something is off here. Like th there are sort of hints of potential violence. There, so, Eli Mosley. There's one bedroom apartment. I didn't want them in, in it. Iraq. But this person is demanding that I remain their girlfriend. He kept saying, like, you're going to make me look like an idiot. So. Sure, we'll sleep in separate bedrooms, but when we're at parties, you're my girlfriend. You get my beer. You make me look good, basically. The running joke between me and him was that I need to do whatever he says because his favorite thing to do is shoot first and ask questions later. And he threatens to dox her. He threatens to have all these violent things happen to her. He says, when I'm in charge of the white ethno state, you know, I'm going to put you in a breeding camp. This guy's not the most charming gentleman, right? He's he's a violent neo-Nazi, essentially. This person was living with me and showing their true colors to me and how violent they were and kind of taking the veil off of this. Like, this person showed me what the alt-right really was, which was violence and rape. And just, I had to... Why don't we have Julia Yofi talk to us about what it's like to have a relationship with Richard Spencer while at the same time writing writing him up as a journalist? Like, let's hear from the various female journalists who covered Richard Spencer while sucking Richard Spencer's dick. Like, let's get let's get that story right. We've heard the Samantha story a dozen times. How about we we hear some different stories here? To start realizing what I was supporting. This is not a movement worth following. This is barely even a movement. This is just a bunch of future criminals plotting their next act of violence. Yeah, so what would an inner look at And it felt really uh, bad being a women's reveal. coordinator and having people care about me and look up to me and me knowing that this was going to be a nightmare. Right. How, how many STDs, how many criminals would we find in Antifa? How much drug use, how much violence, how much abuse, how much rape would we find going on with Antifa? So I've had... Uh, Matthew on, on the show several times. He's he's got the the history speaks uh, Twitter account. So Matthew Gabriel, 
and he's made his first video here on Eric's Hey guys, uh, History Speaks here. This video is going to be the first in the series uh, discrediting Holocaust denial memes, and it relates to the meme you see on the screen repeated by Eric Stryker, um, namely that, uh, and I'm quoting him directly here, only people viciously tortured at Nuremberg or taken before Israeli kangaroo courts like Eichmann ever confess to the Holocaust. Um, in the first place, it should be observed that this meme and other claims about Nuremberg and torture are basically attempts at gish galloping. Because the idea is to get you to spend half an hour explaining why the Nuremberg crowds weren't a fraud, and then the denier has moved on to some other issue. Uh, nihilistic methodology, obviously, on their part. Um, but, but the appropriate response is as follows. Uh, one does not need to justify Nuremberg to reject this denier meme because the premise underlying it, that all perpetrator confessions were coerced or given in the course of trials or people have an incentive to plead guilty perhaps to get a lighter sentence, that's a false, just utterly false misstatement of fact. Um, many perpetrators of the Holocaust, including central figures, confess to their crimes outside of trial in voluntary, non-coercive conversations or even private uh, writings. So, um, and <laughs> what is the evidence of this? Uh, consider as Exhibit A, Gustav Wagner. Uh, Wagner uh, was the deputy commandant at Sobibor, and he was sentenced to death in Germany in absentia, but escaped to Brazil. This was obviously after the war when he escaped to Brazil. And he was located by the Germans and the Israelis in Brazil in 78, but Brazil refused his extradition request. So he was safe in Brazil for the rest of his life. In 1979, however, uh, Wagner, again, while protected from extradition, he gave a detailed interview to the BBC in which he acknowledged what he did at Sobibor. And here's a short excerpt. I didn't think it was right. One saw these people exterminated who were really innocent, but there was nothing I could do. The maxim was the Fuhrer's orders must be carried out. So look, if Wagner had been caught by the Germans or the Israelis, he would have been in a coercive situation, sure. But he wasn't coerced into giving an interview to the fucking BBC. How Holocaust deniers, Holocaust denier world, in Holocaust denier world, can we explain why Wagner would voluntarily give this interview lying that the Jews were exterminated? So why would he do this? Um, and the answer is it's, it's, it's not plausible. Uh, maybe Wagner was crazy, we could say, um, but how were all these other people crazy in the exact same way? And who were all these other people? Well, let's look at Exhibit B. And Exhibit B is Hajamin al-Husseini, you see I'm pictured, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and uh, Nazi collaborator. Uh, Al-Husseini spent the war in Berlin, but because he was utilized by the Germans to create propaganda in an effort to incite the Arab world against the Allies in North Africa and the Levant. Those obviously were sensitive areas because they were theaters of war. And these propaganda efforts, which were largely unsuccessful and based on these notions that Himmler and Hitler had of a ideological affinity with Islam and Nazism. Uh, these efforts are covered in a couple uh, good books, one by David Monadel, the better book, one by Jeffrey Herf, who's a, a great scholar, but is very biased against Arabs, um, you know, so, um, <laughs> Got some great documentation there, but it's not uh, a balanced work, certainly. Anyway, though, El Hosseini uh, was a close confidant of Himmler's. Um, he spent the war in Berlin, as I say. He also met with Hitler, famously. And he created a Muslim division, helped create, rather, 
the Muslim division of the Thoth and SS. So that was on um, what Bukhani did. Uh, Al-Husseini never faced any persecution or prosecution for his wartime collaborations with Nazis. Um, he returned to the Arab world after the war and was safe from extradition in Lebanon, uh, where he wrote his memoirs. But in those memoirs, Al-Husseini wrote that he was well aware of the exterminations of the Jews. In fact, he was personally briefed by Himmler on this matter, according to his memoir. And he was a Holocaust collaborator uh, because he lobbied, even after he knew about what, what was happening to the Jews, he lobbied uh, to prevent their immigration uh, uh, to Palestine and their deportation to German extermination camps. So he was, whatever his reasons, his reasons were uh, presumably to, present, to prevent Zionism and demographic change, which, which hurt the Palestinians. Nevertheless, he was uh, complicit in, in the exterminations in this, insofar as this uh, prevention of immigration is concerned. So again, with the Grand Mufti, our Exhibit B, we have a confession given with no coercion in a fucking memoir, which he voluntarily wrote, that, yeah, I knew about it, and this is a confession from um, someone who was complicit, too. Okay, so Exhibit C is out of Eichmann. Um, in Eichmann's private papers, Stryker mentions Eichmann about, oh, he was coerced in his trial by the Israelis or whatever. But Eichmann wrote and talked about the Holocaust long before he went to Israel. He was captured and kidnapped and went to Israel. Uh, he wrote explicitly that Hitler has ordered the extermination of the Jews, as you can see on the screen. Uh, in point of fact, David Irving, if you're not willing to take my word for it, David Irving um, found many of the Eichmann papers and has reported this. He had this, this statement. Uh, we actually put the quote from Irving on the screen. He's, Irving has reported that, yes, the Eichmann private papers from Argentina, not from Israel, contain this admission. Now, why would he lie in a private conversations and with, an, with like Germans and Nazi sympathizers in Argentina and in a private journal? It just is absurd. All these people are lying to make them to destroy their own reputation. So they're all crazy and crazy in the exact same way. Makes no sense. So with Eichmann, as with El Husseini, as with uh, Gustav Wagner, we had confessions with no coercion, confessions of knowledge and complicity in the Holocaust. Now our last exhibit for now, for more, far more of these non-coercive confessions, but. The last uh, one for this video will be Albert Speer, uh, who famously was Hitler's minister of armaments during the war, tried at Nuremberg and um, slipped the noose by claiming he didn't know about the final solution. Although he was sentenced to 20 years in prison for his use of slave labor, predominantly Slavs. Um, something again, the neo-Nazis are fine with it. Slavs were enslaved during the war by the Nazis, but that's another point. But anyway, uh, Speer publicly always denied knowing about, having known about the Holocaust. However, in a private letter to a Belgian resistor, he admitted he had been present at the Posen speeches by Himmler, these famous speeches in which Himmler, um, most historians think he was trying to kind of implicate and make as co-conspirators many um, higher up uh, Nazis by talking in very explicit detail about how the Jews are being killed. And as Speer says in this letter, he was present when Himmler said all the Jews would be killed. So, you know, we have a confession private conversation, no coercion, of knowledge and complicity in the Holocaust. In fact, it even contradicted his public persona, which he tried to claim, where he tried to claim ignorance in the Holocaust. Um, so those are four exhibits and far, far, far more can be provided. Uh, it'd be rather tedious, but if Stryker 
um, says, oh, that's the only four. Um, I'm happy to provide far more in a subsequent video. But here's the real question. How do we explain these and so many other non-coercive confessions? Imagine, I've made this point before, imagine you were falsely accused of monstrous crimes, say like murdering children. Perhaps you could imagine confessing to such crimes if you were tortured or threatened or coerced in some way. Uh, maybe you could even imagine, I couldn't personally imagine this, but maybe you could uh, imagine falsely confessing to horrible crimes to get a letter of prison sentence to plead guilty when you're innocent. That does happen. But could you imagine confessing to horrific reputation destroying monstrous crimes in a pro that you didn't commit in a private journal, a private letter, a private conversation, a diary or a memoir, in an interview you voluntarily chose to give. It doesn't even begin to make sense. But strikers need to represent the historical record in this regard it is quite, quite uh, sensical. Um, because the existence of so many Holocaust perpetrators, prominent ones like Eichmann and, Sp and Speer, Confessing to their crimes voluntarily with no coercion is another embarrassing problem for the revisionist or denier thesis. Okay, I was going to Okay, let's get back to the Netflix series Web of Make Believe Death, Lies, and the Internet. Did you know that people sometimes do bad things on the internet and that people sometimes have a monster inside? Pretty shocking stuff. Charlottesville, August 11, 2017. We're under attack by these leftist cultural Marxists who hate white people, who hate white people's history. That's Jason Kessler. Hundreds of people descend on Charlottesville and they they organized this online. Many of the people showing up in Charlottesville were people who had criminal records, violent criminal records, often associated with other far-right violence. Some of them actually had previous federal convictions on domestic terrorism charges. These are people who traveled interstate with the intent purpose of committing violence in an organized fashion. Oh, wait, wait, who, who are they fighting with? Are they just fighting with each other? No. They're fighting with Antifa, who really looks forward, seems to be really enjoying the scrap. It's not like the alt-right descended on Charlottesville and then went around looking for people to beat up. Right? This is a street battle between people who chose to participate in a street battle. And when you choose to participate in a street battle, you up the intensity. And when you up the intensity, the ordinary person's ability to make choices gets shrunk down so you you suddenly move into more and more of a fright and, and flight or freeze attitude you don't see things as clearly when you're filled with adrenaline so i remember when i played a role in something that could have been disastrous there was a tennis tournament going on at ucla and i found this concrete outcrop where if i climbed up it i could watch the the tennis tournament for free and then on the the final night our organizers came 
to remove us from the outcrop. So I was one of the first people on the outcrop and then other people joined me. I didn't know if they were influenced by me, but other people joined me. So there were a group of us on the outcrop trying to watch the tennis match for free. And the organizers came along and said, you have to leave. And then one guy who was near me started mouthing off to the organizer and then he slipped and he almost fell off the side of the concrete outcrop. And then I suddenly realized that I was participating in something that was very possibly putting people's lives at, at risk. And so I said, hey, we should just get out of here. And I, I got out of there. So sometimes you can, you can do something thinking it's absolutely harmless. And then suddenly things will escalate quickly and you see people's lives at risk. That shook me up. I've never forgotten that happening in August of 1988. But these fights here with Somehow, Antifa, that the Antifa the element is doesn't get any attention. From that. He's shocked that the federal government is absent from a matter of local law enforcement. It just becomes clear that this rally is going to spark violence. Uh, yeah, but violence with whom? They're not fighting each other. They're not fighting the ordinary citizens of Charlottesville. They're fighting communists who came to have a street battle with them. That seems like important context to me. But I almost never see much attention in the news media to Antifa who goes to these events to engage in street brawls with the alt-right. Without Antifa, there wouldn't be a fight. The alt-right start going around beating up citizens. Right? It takes two to tango. It takes two to have a fight. Who's the other party in this conflict? It's Antifa. Governor declares a state of emergency. They call off the official part of the demonstration. And at one point, it kind of seems like the good guys have won because they're marching through the streets. They're chanting Black Lives Matter. They're sort of saying... Yeah, that's how you know who the good guys are. They're chanting Black Lives Matter. So this is from the Netflix series Web of Make-Believe, Death, Lies, and the Internet. This is episode three, and Andrew Morantz of The New Yorker speaking. We push the bad guys out of our city, and it's almost this kind of jubilant feeling. I ended up never going to the rally, and... Um, I was at work when it happened, the third day on the new job, and there were TVs all over the place, and they were all on coverage of this rally. And James Fields drives his charger into a crowd. mentally disturbed 22-year-old woman dies as and, a result. And uh, my mother called me. I had started to tell my mom what was going on, and she called me crying, and she was like, this is your fault. You have a part of this. Okay, that's dramatic overstatement. All right, Samantha played virtually no role in James Fields going off with his car and uh, driving it into a crowd of people. So 
hysterical overstatement about how, oh, I've got blood on my hands because I was an organizer for a movement that had a rally that turned into a completely predictable street fight that resulted in one casualty, but you had nothing directly to do with that casualty. I wouldn't overstate one's guilt. I remember I was writing an article about how I tracked down the person, Mark Wallace Goldberg, the most likely uh, patient zero in an HIV outbreak in the porn industry. And I thought the most powerful ending was to say, oh, I'm sorry that I didn't uncover him earlier. And like I was conspicuously just showing what a good person I was. And uh, Kathy Seib read it and said, you know, take out that line. It's stupid. It, it wasn't your responsibility to, you know, uncover the the patient zero of the HIV outbreak. It's great that you did it, but you can't be being or showy with, with your moral contrition that you didn't out him earlier. You, you outed him as soon as you found out. So she finds it hard to believe. But there was, there was blood on my hands. Very little. You had um, virtually nothing to do with that. I never wanted that. And you see this particularly with white people. Like there was a black comic who made the point that white people just love to feel bad about themselves. But they love that Nirvana song you know, about, you know, how much I hate myself, I loathe myself. It's uh, it's a white thing. It's just, oh, you know, I just feel so bad. I got blood on my hands because I was associated with a movement that got into a street brawl with a competing movement and somebody died. There's a woman dead. I don't... It... Don't go to violent street brawls, right? You're much less likely to die or to get injured if you abstain from going to violent street brawls between people with not much to lose. Samantha played no role in the death of Heather Heyer. As that march is proceeding through downtown Charlottesville, this guy, James Fields, who is one of the white supremacists, drives his car into a crowd of protesters and kills Heather Heyer, one of the protesters, and injures several others. Everybody's a supremacist of something. Right? Some people are love supremacists, other people are black supremacists, other people are Jewish supremacists. And any thinking person has has something that he believes in and stands for and places as supreme. And it's just this grisly, horrific scene that um and would we have had this grisly, horrific scene if Antifa wasn't engaged in a battle out there? If I've read reports that Antifa was like beating on the car of James Field, if Antifa wasn't waging a street battle with the alt-right, would we have this grisly scene? I doubt it. To, to anyone who had ever said, these are just ideas, these are just questions, you know, why can't we have our free speech? Why can't we just talk about these things? That is the immediate proof that these are not just ideas. Yeah, this is why you can't have free speech. Now, on the other hand, you have Black Lives Matter, which triggered 
a dramatic increase in the murder rate as cops rationally step back from enforcing the law. So we've got thousands and thousands of extra murdered Americans because of Black Lives Matter, but they're a beautiful group that we should venerate. They're the good guys, remember? Right? So the, the alt-right, you could possibly ascribe up to what, about 100 dead Americans due to, you know, vaguely alt-right connected murders. You've got thousands and thousands and thousands of murdered Americans due to Black Lives Matter and the media promoting Black Lives Matter lies, such as the cops are systemically racist and just shooting you know, unarmed black men for, for no reason. Right? The media promotes these lies that have caused the unnecessary deaths of thousands of people. That there are, there are people within this movement who are not just interested in asking questions and talking about demographics and talking about race and IQ, there are people who... Right, but we should talk in a false way about police arrests and police shootings. All right, so the, the number of police shootings of, of unarmed black people, right, police deaths, we're talking like 7, 10, 15 a year, right? Uh, black people are far less likely to be shot by cops than white people who are arrested than by Asian people arrested. Wanna murder people, and that's what they did. It was over. You know, my residence in this world was done. I couldn't pretend like it was just extremists outside of the alt-right or people posing as the alt-right or whatever it is that the- Well, guess what? Every strongly identifying in-group has extremists. I'm going to shock you, but there are some churches that are filled with child molesters, right? There are some churches, there are some synagogues, there are some mosques that on the outside look very respectable, and on the inside, they're criminal organizations. They're child molesting organizations. They're organizations doing horrible things. There are businesses, there are clubs that ostensibly look very respectable, but in certain situations, what's going on inside is absolutely horrific. Right? This is part of the human condition. We present a different face in every situation we find ourselves. The alt-right pretends that it's better than. It became so clear to me that I can't, like, this is reality. Some people have converted to Christianity and it's made their lives worse. They became worse people. Some people have joined Judaism and it's made their lives worse. Other people have joined this business or that club or that educational institution and it turned into a horror show. So we all put up one front for the public to see, and what goes on in private is a very different matter. Um. But yeah, if you join a marginalized movement, you're gonna meet marginalized people. If you join an anti-social movement, you're going to be interacting with a lot of anti-social people. If you go join the porn industry, she you'll be can't just walk out the door and say, "Okay, people. I'm out." I uh, why not? I'm I'm not really familiar with the alt right hunting people down and murdering them if they leave the movement. I, in fact, I I am unaware of a single instance of this. So to say that oh, joining the alt right, joining Identity Europe is like joining the mafia. You can check in, but you can never leave. That's bogus. I quit. It's like it's like the mafia. Like you you can't leave. It's not like the Mafia. There's you have too much information. 
You know who everyone is. They won't just let you walk away. And yet it happens dozens and dozens and dozens of times. They won't let you walk away, yet Even dozens without of people a plan? walked away. So when the alt-right was adding excitement and human connection and community and fun and thrills and a feeling of winning, it rose. And then when belonging to that very same movement started coming with huge prices, people left. People left in the droves. Anyone with anything to lose has left the alt-right. And I'm unaware of anyone who was killed because they left the alt-right. I resigned from my post at Identity Europa and just figured I'd rather be dead than a Nazi. So I left. Seems a tad hyperbolic. She eventually went to stay by herself on the top of a mountain in Virginia somewhere, and, and that's when she first contacts me. She's literally trying to plan, okay, if I walk away from this thing, how do I know that I'll physically be safe? Where do I go? Look, I've had sex with a woman once, and then she's just set out to destroy my life. I've had sex with a woman a few times, and then she just set out to destroy my life. I've, I've had male friends who've had to leave the country because they had sex with a woman, and she then went on a jihad against them. So there are many... Every form of human connection comes with it the possibility of betrayal and horrific consequences. Right? The world is a far more dangerous place than we consciously think about 99% of the time. So every form of human connection comes with it risks. And every form of human connection comes with it the possibility of betrayal. Betrayal is built into connecting with other people. Like... Where do I go where they won't follow me? Do I have to, like, do I have to go into witness protection? Like, what do I do? If I did say anything, the person that was living with me could have very easily destroyed me, destroyed my life. No one was hunting it down. I do fear him tracking me down, and I used to have nightmares that I would come home from work and... Yeah, Eli Bosley, the, the noted warrior of, of stolen valor flame, who told the New York Times... That, you know, he was killing jihadis in Iraq when he never served there. That the people I was living with would just be dead on the kitchen floor with them waiting for me. We can all imagine all sorts of things. It doesn't make them real or realistic. I used to be afraid to leave my job because I can't tell you how many times I heard someone say that, you know, they bombed the cars of opposition. When I was a teenager, I imagined on countless occasions going to bed with Cheryl Teagues, probably well over 100 occasions and going to bear with Jacqueline Smith, and going to bear with Morgan Fairchild. Just because I imagined these scenarios didn't mean that they were anywhere close to actually happening. I laughed when they said that. I thought it was funny. I thought it was badass. And then you leave and... Yeah, we always laugh and we always think it's badass and we always think it's awesome when it's our in-group who's looking out for us. But when our in-group becomes a hated out-group, yeah, situations change. You, like, earn that fear. Um, the very people that promised to protect me are the very people I need protection against. Yes, you left a strongly identifying in-group and spoke out against it, and that, was, which was once your strongly identifying in-group, becomes a hated out-group. That happens every time, right? 
Now, if only there was some kind of you know, love, not hate movement that would take her in and, and look after her, provide her a community, help her to, to get away from hatred. If only there was such a I group. was out of the movement for about a year before I contacted Life After Hate. Now, for all I know, Life After Hate may do good work. So there are plenty of groups like this that I'm sure do good work. Uh, good work for certain people. Maybe they're a bad fit for other people. Uh, but I just know enough about NGOs and, and human organizations that they can have beautiful names and be absolutely satanic. And I don't mean satanic, literally, obviously, just bad news. So a lot of the, the gay anti-bullying groups are essentially grooming groups, just trying to facilitate you know, more and more people experimenting with homosexuality. So anti-bullying sounds wonderful, but some of the actual behavior by some members of some of these groups, it's horrific. Life After Aid is like a nonprofit that was founded by a bunch of formers. That and from her description, it sounds like a good group. Right? These sound like good people doing good things who've turned their lives around. That's what we call ourselves, people that leave an extremist movement. I had friends who could listen, who could try to understand, but I mean, they could only understand so much. So I actually reached out just after uh, the deadly Charlottesville. And the chat says, have you heard about a former Wignat, Eli Saslow? Eli Saslow was not a Wignat. Eli Saslow is an author. He wrote a book about a guy who used to be important in the white nationalist movement, uh, Derek Black. So his dad, Don Black, was a leading white nationalist. So Eli Saslow wrote, wrote a book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. It's a good read. Right. Even as a, if you're a white nationalist, I think you'd still, still benefit from this book. Rally and asked if I could help because I got to a point where I, I kind of said, you know what, I have like five years experience from this movement. It's way too much time to forget. And quite honestly, I have way too much say to, to stay quiet. We need other people. There's a group in there called Formers Anonymous. It's like a 12-step for folks like us. I Wait, what was that? Say to, to stay quiet. There's a group in there called Formers Anonymous. It's Formers Anonymous. It sounds like a great program, right? You're involved in an intensely uh, antisocial group, and you come to your senses and you leave. Yeah, Formers Anonymous sounds like a good thing. Like the twelve-step model is just a fantastic model that's helped hundreds of thousands of people improve their lives. Like a twelve-step for folks like us, I volunteer with them. There are things that you see in the movement and things that you go through in the movement. The hateful part of it, and to be around people where I can tell people things, really saved me and really helped me gain perspective yes there is a way out sounds like a good thing okay what's going on in sydney australia
Thank you so much for abiding with me. Bye-bye.